Welcome to another episode of the Rental Journal Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the equipment rental industry. I'm your host, Mark Simonson, and today's guest is Charlie Pidcock. Charlie has over 30 years experience in sales and first got exposed to the equipment rental industry in the early 2000s with National Hire. He would go on to have a very successful career in sales within the equipment rental industry, but would later find his passion where he would start becoming a sales leader by providing training and coaching to external sales teams. A number of organizations in the equipment rental industry now enlist their sales teams and individuals to undertake the B2B selling series by Charlie Pitcock. Now, I thought what better way to understand and learn from one of the masters in the equipment rental industry in the sales space. So Charlie, I want to thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. To kick things off, can you talk to me about how you first got involved in the equipment rental industry? I'd spent 10 years at my family's business. We, we, we um, manufactured and, and sold building materials. And I ran the Sydney office and I left there in the early 2000s. And then I ended up applying for a job at National Hire in 2004. And it was, and it was just after they were acquired by Westrack. And I knew that that sort of investment meant opportunity. And I was really, really excited to be part of the Caterpillar brand. So I took a job in, in two, uh, I think it was about May 2004 as their New South Wales sales manager. And uh, my team and I were responsible for the sales of, of a variety of equipment. Uh, so some of it was just the basic tools and equipment. Some of it was the site sheds and portaloo. Some of it was access. I think there was light and power in there somewhere. So generators and lighting towers. There was pumps. And uh, and then oh, we also brought the earth moving equipment from the Caterpillar brand into that business. So I guess the owners of that business saw the culture of my family business fairly similar to what National Hire had at the time as a, as a medium-sized family business before um, they really went on that growth curve of um, acquisition I think the first one was was All Light not long after that. AH AH Plant was after that. So I think they were two, in in my head, I called them two. Well, National High was turning over about 40 million. I think AH and All Light were about 200 million each. So all of a sudden, we're a $500 million business, you know. And I didn't really realize what I'd signed up for at that stage. And then um, a few years later, they actually took over the Coates business. So it became, in a really short period of time, over $1 billion business at that time. And my staff went from 10 to 60. And uh, I found it because I'd spent 10 years in product sales, I found it really difficult to to appreciate the time and financial utilization differences across those couple of different product groups, because some required an awful lot of repairs and maintenance and some of them required nothing. Some of them went out for a day and they were hugely profitable and some of them went out for months or if not years and they weren't so profitable. So just jumping between the balance as well as some of those, the integrations of those large, couple of large businesses was really challenging, you know, and, uh, I often look back and think it's a, you know, acquisitions or or mergers are really great to have gone through. Sometimes they're not particularly good to go through because they're very, they're, there's a lot of change going on, you know, and the uncertainty around that was uh, was certainly challenging with my backdrop of not really being a, a born and bred high guy. You know? Yeah. So a couple of things come to mind there. What made you decide to, like you mentioned that the seeing West Track partner with National Hire and work together, like, but did you know much about the hire industry before joining? Like what was your exposure? I, I, I knew nothing, Mark, but, but I'd spent, 10 years growing a business in building materials. So I had a really good grip on, on that industry. 
uh, we sold a, a range of different products into medium and large construction companies. And that's who National High's customer base was. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily the fact that I, I knew higher. It was, a, it was that I, I knew the market. And as much as anything else, the, the probably move from Big River Timbers, as it was in those days, to National Hire was the easiest cultural transition that I've ever made in my life. And, and I think uh, the management of National Hire saw that. Sorry, I was just going to say, and then, but you, when you joined National Hire, it was, as you said, a $40 million business. And then within a few years, it was a billion dollar business through all the acquisitions. Like, what was the culture change over those years? Because it's a very different organization. What was it like working through that period? Oh, it was crazy, mate. It was just crazy. Uh, I think that, you know, one of the things about National Hire, I remember um, Greg Parfit saying at the time, you know, if you looked at the National Hire business strategically, it was in the most competitive parts of the market in Sydney, Newcastle, Wollongong. Hey, Rental Journal podcast listeners, tired of manual data entry in your CRM? Does your current CRM slow you down? It's time to build and close deals from anywhere. Remove manual data entry, create and send quotes in three clicks with Arrow. Finally, a powerful way to close deals on your phone. See Arrow in action at the ARA show in Las Vegas on October 17th through 20th. The Arrow team will be at booth 1636 to talk to you, answer your questions and show you how you can search for inventory in seconds, track your pipeline, send e-documents and more. Plus, while you're there, you can pick up a free T-shirt and enter Arrow's raffle to win a Yeti cooler. Unlock your growth with Arrow, the tool built specifically for rental dealers to build and close big deals in a simple, powerful way. Enjoy the rest of the podcast, but be sure to check out Arrow at booth 1636 at the 2021 ARA show in Las Vegas. Um, in, in really tight margin product and product segments, you know. So uh, whereas All Light was uh, running around the mines, all right, in Western Australia and, and Western Queensland, so strategically it was really, really clever uh, and it was really high profit, but they didn't have to necessarily be as sharp and as tenacious as we did locally. So we came from, we came from almost polar opposites and that was certainly challenging for sure uh, with the people and and the personalities and the reporting and the scrutiny over which National High used to watch every single penny and um, and and some of those other businesses because they didn't need to watch them they were much more yeah uh, loose is not meant to be disrespect, disrespectful because they were great businessmen they just didn't have to watch the pennies as much as National High did mm. yeah and you mentioned that there was a bit of a learning curve on the products that you were renting compared to more just having a, a retail side business like. How did you sort of learn the hire industry? Like, what, what advice would you give to another sales manager that's joining the hire industry? That's a good question. My, my battle was, I think if I think if National Hire had stayed a forty or fifty million dollar business, and I'd been in that game uh, for twelve or eighteen months before that, really, really sped up, I'd have been fine, right? It was just trying to learn that on the run, as well as having a team that went from ten to sixty where there was really big differences in cultures. I just think that kind of brought me undone, really. And um, after four or five years, I was literally exhausted. So what advice would I give? Just get, get on the ground with your people. Go out and see what the products are used for, how long they might go out for, and really learn it from a numbers perspective. But I, because of the pace of, of that investment and those acquisitions, I, I, I didn't get the chance to do that, or I didn't take the chance, right? Uh, and if I'd have gone back in time, I would definitely have have been across the day-to-day -day numbers much, much more.
And was there any other companies or what were maybe what, what was the transition for your roles over those years? It's a few years ago now. It's going, it's coming up to nearly 15 years ago. But but basically I was the the New South Wales sales manager. And yeah, like I said, I, I think I had 10 staff when I started and I had 60 at the end. And then I left just as we bought coats. And I just realized at that time that I'd I'd gone as far as I could as a sales manager. I really wanted a smaller part of the business. And that just wasn't going to be the structure they had going forward. And I didn't really want to manage 150 to 200 staff. So I I decided to leave as part of the the merger. And, um, you know, part of that was very difficult because I'd made some really good friends. I think the hire industry is really, really collegiate. It's much more collegiate than some of the other industries I've worked. And Mm. and that's that's, that's, um, really admirable and enjoyable. Yeah, it's definitely a common theme. And if you just go through the the whole sub-hire concept in itself, there's not many industries that sort of support each other and growing competitors when they need uh, stock to, to rent out to other customers at any point in time. That I think it's just in itself, that's probably a really good example of how it works together and it really is a, a united industry. Yeah, I think I think that does happen in other in other industries. Like I, I spent um, you know, about 10 years in hire and about 10 years in timber and building materials. And and those guys do a bit of that as well. I actually I actually think that part of it's been some of the consolidation that's happened in the industry. There's an awful lot of technological advancements in machinery, obviously. And and I actually also think that the HRIA has played a wonderful leadership role in the whole industry. And I, 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 sometimes I don't think that individual members really appreciate that. I can see it because I've stood back from it and watched it and compared it to other industries. So uh, the sub hire is a good thing, no doubt. And there's there's been a lot of people that come into the hire industry and and don't leave because they like it, you know, and they're good at mm. it. And, and that's always a, 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 an attractive kind of thing, you know. And so when you left the hire industry, what was the next step then? So I went to a small business in 2008. Um, So I was 2004 to 2008 at National Hire. And then I went to a small business at the start of 2008. And unfortunately, the global financial crisis finished, closed that business down in Sydney. So I lost my job then at the end of that year. And then early the following year, I I started working for a a construction company. And, uh, you know, guys like me don't usually get jobs at construction companies. I was aware of that. But we had a family friend that owned a reasonable, I think it was 40 or $50 million business. And he had not been a builder. He went into his father's business. And as part of the transition of his father out, he really needed someone with some industry experience. So I went in there to do his business development and and just help him with his um, networks. And that was around about the time when uh, the BR program came in to try and uh, help us out of the global financial crisis hole. So I was doing the business development for that. And I went from having 60 staff kind of 12 months beforehand to having none. And I kind of found that uh, with respect to all the people that I've worked with over the years, quite liberating. Um, so I did three years in that, but, but eventually I found that I craved to have people again. But it was a great experience to work for an organization, the likes of which I've been trying to sell to for 20 years at that point. Mm. It's really worthwhile. Okay. And then, so how did the whole coaching business come up then? Well, I, I, went, from, I went from that business called Gartner Rose, which was the construction company. And after three years, it was, it was time to, to move on. And I got a job with Agreco, 
the the international organization hiring out generators and temperature control equipment and, and that was the one thing i kind of didn't have on my resume and i can't I was looking for a large business with the structure and, and I did four years there, which was another great experience, but I'd always grown up thinking one day I'd have my own business. I just didn't really know what that was. And it wasn't until, you know, I, I kind of had an epiphany at the age of 45, which my wife calls a brain fart. But um, I had a friend die, which was pretty sad. He was he was 45, was in my year at high school and he died of kidney cancer after a two-year battle, left four kids behind and... I just think I wasn't really enjoying myself at that time. And it really shook me up. And I kind of thought that I should live my life enjoying what I was doing uh, in honor of him because he didn't get his chance to live his life, you know? So that led me to um, to a couple of conversations. And I, I'd done a sales training program um, very early in my career. You know, I'd done six years of high school and four years of university. Then I started work and realized I didn't really know anything. and um, I went to a, a three-day sales training program and essentially I think that changed my life, you know. I went back to it all those years later because I just found it so profound that you can actually learn to sell and it's such an important skill. You're either selling a product, you're selling a, yourself into a job or as a manager, you're selling ideas to your staff. Like it's, they're just crucial skills, but they're not, they're not taught and and they can be learned. Yeah, so maybe it'd be good to to give the the audience a bit of a breakdown of what makes up your coaching business and and what's the breadth of the services that you you do offer. Sure. To be fair, um, you know, I've spent all my life in organisations that differentiate through relationships and solution selling, and most of those most of those have been in in building material or heavily industrial type of organisations. And, and the reality is solution selling and relationships goes across many different industries. I've taught uh, professional services people to sell accountants, lawyers, engineers now, because the concepts are the same. People think that their industry is different, but that's only because they haven't really worked in many. So I've developed a, a really short course. It, I deliver it every month. It goes for an hour and a half a day for one week. And it, it essentially just looks at the five, the, the, sorry, the four stages of a sales funnel and it overlays why people buy. And I just take people through a very simple journey from that perspective. And I think it was Einstein said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't know it well enough. But in my view, there's there's four steps to a sales funnel. It's first of all, you've got to identify whether someone's a customer or not. So that is answering the questions, who are they and where are they? The second thing is you've got to qualify them, all right? So what do they need? Because it starts with what they need. And then what have we got as a supplier? The third part of it is to satisfy, all right? And that's the point you turn a, a prospect into a customer. So we close them at that point. And the fourth part is solidify, which means we're trying to get them to buy more, more often. So four stages, really quite simple. I mean, it's simple, but it's not easy, like lots of things, right? And then I I just run a bit of a, a facilitated session, session over, over why people buy. And I love the quote by uh, Zig Ziglar. He's a famous American management consultant. He said, people buy of people they like, know, and trust. And if you put like, know, and trust over identify, qualify, satisfy, and solidify, and that's all you ever did, then you'd be really, really successful in sales in my view. So I've got that one week long course. I can deliver that same, those same modules over, over three months or 12 months, depending on whether an organization wants to do it um, in-house or as part of a group environment. So there's that training component. There's also some coaching of individual salespeople and some mentoring 
that I deal with actual actual sales managers as well. It's a lot of fun. I, I can't imagine. Uh, I mean, I've had some great jobs and um, had some really good times in all the companies that I've worked in, but I can't imagine doing anything else at the moment. I just love it, which is good. I'm grateful for that. How many people think do you, do you think go through life and don't have that that moment at 45 and they just continue going through the normal day-to-day and never do what they actually want to do and love? It frightens me, mate. It frightens me to think about it. I think... Um, it was one of the things that, you know, the, the loss of a close friend did to me. Uh, it really wisened me up. And, and, and I should say that I, I was coming home every day to a, uh, to a wife that absolutely loved what she did. She's a school teacher. And I, I kind of get home and I'd be exhausted, right? And I like my job and I work with good people, but I didn't love what I was doing. And there's a really big difference to that in terms of the energy that you give yourself. So I'd come home after what I thought was a hard day work and my wife would be bouncing off the walls. And I didn't know, but I was saying subconsciously to myself, I want to drink some of that Kool-Aid, you know? And it was too late to, for me to become a school teacher. But uh, when, when I look back on my life and, and did lots and lots of reflection um, and, you know, dare I say it, a bit of therapy, uh, I, I really connected a whole bunch of dots that I was destined to be a developer of people when it comes to sales training or business development. That's awesome. And, and I think it's becoming more accepted around mental health and well-being, and people trying to look inwards a bit more about are they happy? Are they happy with what they're doing? Those sort of things. I've just seen it sort of take off in the last few years and people have been more and more open with how they feel and what they actually want to achieve and what actually makes them happy. Is that, like, as you said, it's it's frightening how many people just go through life and don't actually like take a step back and reflect on what they actually want. Yeah, and every everyone's circumstances are different, right? And, and unfortunately, uh, we all get ourselves into a feeling where we feel trapped. And uh, I, I can tell you from 33 to 45, I th- when I look back, I think I was, I, I kind of think it like I was on a treadmill um, and n- not in a bad way, because what I also know was that I was just collecting the tools, the techniques, the ideas and the relationships that I would need in the future, which is now. So I don't, I don't say it from a, a bad or a disrespectful uh, point of view, but upon reflection, uh, that's what I learned from it. And yeah, I, I didn't realize, and I think I must be a fairly slow learner that until, you know, when I was in my early forties that, you know, this, this life was, it's not a trial run, right? You don't get to try it and then go, right, I'm going to, I'm going to have another crack and do all these things differently, particularly, yeah. you know, the loss of that friend. You know? Yeah, definitely. So, um, so- yeah. So, so being exposed to so many salespeople and sales teams, and especially people that you're you're putting through your course as well, like what do you think is probably the biggest challenge you see sales teams in a B two B environment face? I think there's a couple of them, right? And one of them, one of them, one of them is around the balance of technology. So the, I think the pace of business has sped up. There's no doubt about it in the last 20 or 30 years. And, and with computers, we can, we, we can find so much data out about a, a variety of different things. But organizations are, are, are trying to measure themselves almost to a standstill. And so I think using technology constructively and helping it to, helping it to guide good decisions and get people to do the right things is one of them. I think we, unfortunately, sometimes we try and hide behind technology in terms of how how ineffective it is in terms of communication. Don't think salespeople should be selling. In the world that I operate in, I don't think salespeople should be selling via text message or, or email. I, I don't know about you, but I work for myself by myself and I can barely get through the emails that I get 
on a daily basis. And it was 10 times worse when I was in when, when I was working for companies because you get CC'd in on just about anything. So I think I think that's the first one. Uh, the balance of technology and using it uh, strategically and specifically to drive your business. I think the second one is finding people. So finding, developing and keeping talent is a huge one. My view in, in Australia uh, is that we've been, uh, apart from the last couple of years, we've had 50 years of near on positive economic growth. No other country's had that. And I think that um, that has led to really, really low unemployment. And it's, it's, it's led to um, not enough resilience in some people to deal with adversity. So so people up and leave if if they get a dressing down by their manager or whatever the case is. Now I left uh, I left university in 1992 in the middle of a recession we had to have, and um, I couldn't find a job for three months, and my sister couldn't find a job for for two years. So when I got a job, I did whatever I had to. Um, so I think sometimes we um, we 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 get we're a little bit soft, and when we do need to um, we do need to harden up a little bit. It's amazing how effective a phone call is compared to an email. But you've you've got that yeah. person's attention at that at that point in time, and all they're focusing about is potentially just going to be you. With an email, it's like there's so many things that are around them that they could potentially get avoided by. They might lose the email, they might delete the email, they might forget about the email. It goes to number. 40 on the list for the day. And so, yeah, I think sometimes people need to step back and just realize phone calls and site visits even more so if we could at the moment with the, the current uh, environment. But yeah, those two back to basics, they obviously play a big part in what someone's success might look like in sales. One of my sayings is you should never, ever, ever let a sale get in the way of a good conversation. And uh, about quarter past or half past five last night, I rang the CEO of a, a business that turns over about $700 million. He's got 500 people that works for him. And we were speaking for 20 minutes with each other before he said, and I got lost in the conversation. We're just having a really good conversation, right? And he said, you didn't ring me just to talk to me. But, but that's where we went to. And then we had a bit of a discussion about a few things that were outstanding between the two of us. But it was just a reminder to me to, exact, for, to exactly your point. Sometimes even people like CEOs, they crave a conversation because we get lost in spreadsheets. We get lost in emails. And um, a lot of people can't even spell, much less construct a sentence. So the chances are that emails are going to be misinterpreted anyway. And, uh, and so we get all very defensive about that. So it, it's, it's, it's a kind of train smash way to happen, I reckon. Pick up the phone, for goodness sake. Yeah, and I think it sort of speeds the whole process up as well. Like if you send an email, you're waiting six hours, eight hours a week to get a response that if you make the phone call at 9am, you've got your answer. You just gained a whole day on the process as well. So yeah, probably, and I think this is, this is people that are listening to this at 101 sales that have been in sales for over 15 years, 20 years are probably thinking this is obvious. It's more the new people that are coming into sales that you want to make sure that they've got that mindset. Don't, don't hide behind a computer. Don't hide behind a text message, as you said. Be confident to talk to people and, and share experiences and connect. It's, it's really hard, right? Because um, as I said there a few minutes ago, balancing technology. People are punching out emails. You have automated kind of communication that goes out to a range of different people. I send out a newsletter each and every month. Uh, but but some, some people are just trying to get so much in the, in the top of their sales funnel. You know, we're chasing volume and, and that leads us to a dangerous place around competing on price. And no one ever wins that race to the bottom. So I, I would like us to, to, to slow down what's going into the top of the funnel. 
to uh, highlight the, the value of our proposal or proposition or service offer or product offer or whatever it is, because you don't need to sell as much when you're making more margin. And as, uh, as my first managing director said, no one ever went broke chasing margin. A, lo- a number of people go broke trying to, uh, to sell too much without respecting mm. the cost of that or, or how much leakage they're getting because they haven't got the systems in place. Yeah, and I think that's a good point with a lot of this marketing automation as well. Just because you, you're sending out a thousand emails in the month or week or whatever it is, and you've got a whole bunch of like pre-qualified leads that are sitting at the, at the top of the funnel, doesn't mean that you've achieved your goal in terms of your KPIs because you've got pre-qualified leads there. If, if there's a thousand emails and thousand emails turns into 50 pre-qualified leads and then none of them close, but then someone call makes three phone calls and closes one deal. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? It, 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 the metrics work out pretty funny when you actually start trying to be a bit more effective in this strategy as well. Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're kind of seeing um, an interesting an interesting concept they're playing out in terms of the papers these days, the printed paper. There's barely anything in them, all right? But they're still carrying on about circulation, all right? And in the old days, the, the City Morning Herald used to be an inch and a half or two, two inches thick on a on a Saturday morning, you know, uh, but they're not like that anymore. And it's not about circulation. It's actually about, as you say, rubber hitting the road. It's about orders in your book or deliveries on your schedule or whatever it is. It's it's not some magical number that's about, you know, readership isn't circulation. So look, I was doing a bit of research on your website as well. And a few things jumped out at me. So I wanted to, to ask you, I saw that you had the tenacity, curiosity and confidence. So how do these relate to sales? I think it's it's so complicated, right? I've got a, a graph on my wall or a, a kind of a, a circular graph or pie chart on, on the six different things it takes to be, uh, to master sales. And there's three or four different things inside of that. And I was showing someone that one day and they said, how, that course looks great. How long does it take? And I said, well, I've been doing it 25 years and I'm still failing, right? Uh, but tenacity, curiosity and confidence are all, in, on that graph at some level, right? And I think you, you have to be tenacious as a salesperson because every business needs sales, but not everyone wants to be a salesperson. Not everyone's got the tenacity to do that. So you've got to be fairly quick thinking. You've got to uh, want to succeed. You've got to want to win. And you've got to want to try and help people. And that takes tenacity to do that. I think that really closely links to curiosity because uh, want, wanting to help people requires you to think harder and good questions through a curious mindset will help you to come up with solutions that the customer might not have even thought of, right? And during my program, I said the best way to connect to people is to help them solve problems they don't even know they've got. And you do that through through a curious mindset and good questions. And finally, you do it through listening. And then I, I think confidence is, is key uh, in anything, right? You need you need confidence in, in your product and the organization that you're working for because it's very difficult to, to sell something if you don't have that conviction around the people that are behind you. And then the, the personal confidence to have a conversation with people that, that, that risk yourself being rejected. And one of the fundamental parts of human nature is the need to be connected or the need to be liked or loved. So salespeople risk that every single day. So you've got to be able to deal with that through confidence. One of my early sales managers used to say, I want you to go, I don't care if you've had nine knockbacks all day. You need to go into that last sales call at quarter to five in the afternoon, like you're about to tell the prospect he's just about to win the lottery. And it kind of served me fairly well, you know, but it's uh, it's very contextual 
around lots of different things that happen to to us as human beings and as salespeople. So I think those, I love those three words, you know, and um, it's a it's a good it's a good start to work on for sure. Yeah, being curious is interesting, and I think you can apply being curious to almost any role. I think if you were to recruit someone into a position and they're not curious about learning or applying themselves or asking questions it's probably a big flaw because that person's just there just to tick the boxes and move through the next step. If, if you're curious, you're going to ask questions and, and learn. And, and the second thought that come to my mind was sometimes people think that when they're, they're moving through the motions and they're curious and they're asking questions, sometimes when you're, you show curiosity and you're actually curious about something, you'll ask the right questions. So sometimes when you're trying to dig deeper around solution sales or whatever it is, if you ask the same five questions to everyone, obviously you're going to get the same five answers throughout the whole process. So sometimes you need to take a step back and just make sure you're asking the right questions and then you might get much better answers as well. And that usually comes by being curious and just sort of digging a bit deeper. I think so, uh, for sure. I think that, um, you know, I said it a few minutes ago, never let, never let a sale get in the way of a good conversation. And a good conversation uh, is underpinned by curiosity from, from both sides. If you have good conversations, then something good will happen. It might not necessarily be a sale with this particular person at this particular point in time, but there'll be respect that grows because you've asked good questions and even more importantly, you've listened and, and then a relationship will grow and that will lead to a partnership down the track that will be far greater than a one-off sale in my view and, and in my experience too. We, we, do, we, we did chase the sale. We, we, we get stuck chasing a monthly or a, or a quarterly quota in some cases. And sometimes just taking a step back from that is, is really challenging. There's no two ways about it. Because we've all got um, shareholders uh, in our businesses or stakeholders or owners that, that are investing money in us. And then, you know, if you, if you strip it right back, they're going to put their money where they get the best return. In, in, in some cases, not in all cases, but in some cases that's... So we're competing with a variety of industries for, for money in some cases. Definitely. All right, well, let's learn a little bit more about you. So who do you think played a big influence in your career from a mentor perspective? Well, I, I mentioned before we started recording about my my maternal grandmother, grandfather. So I learned two lessons off him through a couple of different conversations. One of them was the power of lifelong learning. And uh, the second one was the power of human connection. So they, they, they've run through my life forever. Funnily enough, I, um, I never met my paternal grandfather. He died six years before I was born, but I still kind of feel him inside me. So I've got some of his uh, traits, I think, and I, I can feel him inside. I've had some good bosses uh, that I've learned from. So I mentioned Greg Parford earlier on. I learned a lot from Adrian Manning as well. I learned a lot from, from my staff and, and the teams that I've worked from and all the mistakes that I've made with them um, over the years. And some of them will be listening out for those. And I, I, I had a couple of really bad experiences with managers that I learned from. And um, I vowed never, ever to treat someone the way I was treated uh, by those two organizations or people in particular. So they weren't nice things, but I wouldn't change them because I learned the most from them. And, um, and certainly, um, you know, my, my father played a big influence in my overall view of, of business. He had his own business, very successful business. And that was part of the reason I think I grew up thinking one day I'd have my own business. I just took a long time to find it. And uh, as I said earlier, I was uh, just getting all the tools and the techniques and the relationships that I'd need to leverage into it, mate. Well, let's, um, let's uncover that a little bit around you learning from managing people without going into too much detail. Is there anything that jumps out at you, but you, we sort of think back and can unpack like a, 
like something that you clearly learned from what the way that you're sort of managing a team that, that sort of helped you in the future? Like could be positive, could be negative. Um, it'd be good to sort of unpack that a little bit. I think it, it in the moment sometimes when I wasn't thinking hard enough or aware enough or considerate enough, I could often, I, on two or three occasions, I just found myself saying something that was a, a throwaway comment and I didn't realise how hurtful or offensive it was. And I'd done a lot of work with a couple of individuals in particular to uh, build up my relationship and 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 respect and regard and rapport and all those really positive things. And I would spend weeks and months and hours kind of strategizing with myself to try and do it. But then the power of a couple of poorly chosen, poorly thought out, poorly timed words, how dangerous that is to a relationship. And then I'd find myself having to being back further than when I started because I was just not aware enough at that particular point in time. So, so that was one of the early ones for me. You know, the experience I had when I, I got called into my boss's office and lost my job uh, and I got sent home with a cab and a cardboard box taught me a lot about what not to do to people. So later in my career, I was very, very, very respectful of individuals because I think behind every pay packet that a business dishes out, there's someone that's trying to make a dollar to feed their family, to house their family, to educate their family. And uh, humans go through all sorts of emotions at different stages in their lives. They've got um, all sorts of bags that they're carrying around. And some of them, are, on some days, they're heavier than others. And I'm just, I think um, being respectful around that and demonstrating empathy towards it, I think it's really, really important. And I was better at that much later in life than I was earlier. And I think, I can't remember who said this, this famous quote, but it's on the lines of people will forgive you for what you say, but they'll never forget the way you made them feel. It's Maya Angelou. And she said, I've learned that people never really remember what you said and they don't really remember what you did, but people always remember how you made them feel. That's a big part of my coursework now. And and honestly, when, when I say that to people, even through the screen, you can feel the emotion that people just connect with it so strongly. It's a beautiful sentiment. And it's a wonderful quote. It's amazing how it. powerful words are, isn't it? Oh, well, positively and negatively, as I was just demonstrating, mate, you know. And mm. um, yeah, I'm sorry to those people that are listening to this that I might have offended and there would be a few. But um, I like to think that I've been pretty good at mending bridges, the one, those that I knew that I burned anyway. That's good to hear. So mm. on that topic, if you could give some advice to younger self, what would you say? This is a good, it's a really good question, right? And and I probably thought about it a little bit too long, but but there's no doubt what came to mind is I'd have kids earlier. Right? I became a father at the age of 30 and I'd been a lifelong learner up until that point and I still am today. But I didn't know what empathy was until I had children. And I used to confuse it with sympathy, which I'm quite embarrassed to say. But I, I think being so responsible for uh, other human beings teaches takes you to another level in terms of empathy. So that would be um, that would be definitely one. Um, the other thing I would definitely do, and I don't know whether this comes before the third one, but I, I would I would follow my intuition much much earlier, and I would like to have had the confidence that um, that came that you know built on that, and in terms of managing my own risk. And, and the the final thing is, I think I'd. I would have, I didn't really understand in my early part of my career, I didn't really have any mentors and I would have sought them out much, much more uh, because 
I think they can awfully big difference. And, you know, part of part of the reason I do what I do now is because I didn't have me when I needed me between the age of 20 and 30. You know, it just wasn't in my world for a, a range of different reasons. But it is definitely a hole that I'm trying to fill as a 52-year-old. So, um, yeah, that's they're those three things. Have kids younger to learn empathy or appreciate empathy a little bit more. Back my intuition and take a few more risks and, and get the right mentors and and really listen to them, be the three. That's awesome. Yeah, something that you, you mentioned earlier about for a number of years, you, you thought that you were just on the treadmill. And I feel like sometimes people are too busy on the treadmill to even think about a mentor and they're just stuck in the motions of doing things. Oh, great, yeah. And I, I've, I've mentioned this on other podcast episodes that if you don't have a mentor, there's plenty of programs out there, plenty of resources. Like just think of a mentor as someone you're learning from in a relationship. And you, you look, and in, a lot of times the people that are doing the mentoring are also learning through the whole process as well. So definitely if anyone's out there that doesn't have a mentor or you think you need a mentor, look, reach out to the Hiring Rental Association. They've got plenty of resources that are available, but just look to people and, and ask for help. And I'm sure help will come your way very quickly. Yeah, I agree, Matt. I agree 100%. And I would also say, and just, it's, it's funny that you might say that because we didn't really have the internet when I was 20, 25. Uh, but but I, I got um, mentored by the books that I read and um, the quotes that I still use today. Uh, so they mentored me in a, in, in a certain way, but not, not in real time and not in the moment. But, you know, that's okay. That's the journey that I've been on. Mm, that's it. And so mm. how do you define success? I would definitely say that it's changed over the years. Uh, very early on, I, I I pursued the idea of being a general manager as some sort of status or control issue. And I, I think I latched onto that advice a bit too early, a bit too hard and a bit too long. Uh, it was bad advice that didn't really serve me. So I, I think that and between that and um, and the treadmill, where I was trying to pay a Sydney mortgage and I was trying to educate my children, just just took me off my purpose in terms of success. And I just I was doing some research on success just a few weeks ago, actually, and I came across a quote which I just love, which I'm I'm going to share with you. But it's actually, funnily enough, it's by Maya Angelou again, and and she says. A definition of success is liking who you are, what you do, and how you do it. And uh, I might not be there today, but I, I can definitely feel myself working towards that. And uh, so that's my definition of success. Even though it's it's changed and developed and hit some potholes and gone around a few bends, that that's I love that quote as well. That's awesome. And look, you only learn those sort of things over time. You're not going to yeah. know everything from when you're 22 or 25 or 40 or whatever, or 50, whatever it is, as uh, stereotypical as it sounds, or as corny as it sounds like it is a journey you're sort of going through, go part of it. Yeah. You know, I've got an 18 year old daughter and 20 year old son now. And, and I can I can see lots of what I was going through, uh, through their experiences in life. And um, I remember when I was about 30 or 35, I was talking to someone and he said, I, lo I love turning 40 because I knew so much more when I was, than when I was 30. And I love turning 50 because I knew so much more when I was 40. And I can't wait to be 60 because I'm going to know so much more than when I'm 50. And I just really heard that, you know. And I think as we get older, we get wiser. And, and we, we realize that we've got to allow others to go on that journey themselves. And they can only see things when they're coming up in a, in, in a set of circumstances, allows them to learn it when they're ready to learn it. Definitely. I've got a mate, yeah. got a mate who, uh, who teaches uh, martial arts. And he, shared, he said that uh, when the student is ready, the teacher 
arrives. And I reckon that's life's wisdom getting taught to us. Yeah, for sure. All right, Charlie. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Thanks, mate. It's been, um, it's been a lot of fun. Appreciate your time.